The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International. Next on Life Today, author and speaker Joe Saxton explains how she knows firsthand how quickly the world can cause us to doubt our dreams and question who we are. And got here and thought, finally, this is what the Lord has for me. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. And it was so hard. And I just didn't understand. I'd prayed about this, I'd fasted, I'd, people had prayed for me, sent me, I'd left my family, my loved ones. It was meant to be amazing and it was just tough. Welcome to Life Today. I'm Randy Robison. And I'm Sheila Walsh, and I'm really excited about this program. You know, I travel every weekend, and I'm always, you know, from L.A. to New York. But just recently, I walked into a green room, and I heard an accent that made me feel at home. Um, oh a fellow Brit. Oh, yes. Yay. It's a glorious thing, <laughs> and I just fell in love with her and love this new book that's coming out. So please, would you welcome our guest, Joe Sexton. We could just sit here and be quiet and just let you talk and let people hear your lovely voice. <laughs> Very kind of you. But the, the book is called The Dream of You, Let Go of Broken Identities and Live the Life You Were Made For. What, what prompted you to write this book, Joe? Well, I think there are a number of things. As I was speaking and traveling, I met lots and lots of wonderful people, but who were really wrestling, wrestling with their identity or not being able to get past the past. And um, I, I would ask them two questions, two questions, well, lots, but two. <laughs> uh, and the two questions were always, who were you before anyone told you who you were supposed to be? And um, the second one was, when did you lose your voice? Wow. Because there was this sense of all this potential and all these ideas and, and an insecurity that made them second guess it, uh, that left them wondering and um, acting in ways they weren't even comfortable with, if they're honest. And they knew on paper that Jesus loved them and that their identity was in Christ and they sang the songs and read the books, but the life was really challenging. It's actually a pretty profound question. It is. Do you find that people are able to, to answer that? Um, not immediately. I think, mm. I think it brings them to um, a journey. I think that it's, it starts um, people thinking of often their childhood dreams yeah. or the thing they were going to do, yeah. the person they had always prayed to be, the prayer they prayed, the commitment mm -hmm. they made once. And, and then the, often the sadness that we didn't even notice our dreams die. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you, you phrased the question interestingly, when yeah. did you lose your voice? Yeah. Why that terminology? Well, um, I did Latin at school, which I still question why, really. Brave girl, brave girl. <laughs> I don't really have a choice. They don't teach uh, that in Texas. No. <laughs> I'm not sure they should have taught it in London either. But, um, but the word voice um, comes from vox, and it's from the same root as the word vocation. Mm and a calling out, a calling forth. Mm. And so, and I think we understand that even intuitively in the culture when someone's talking about their voice, it's about what they're about, what's meaningful to them. But again, um, and, the, and their voice in practice and what they do because of their voice on the inside. So I think it made me ask, you know, that, that idea that you've kept to yourself, mm -hmm. that thing I saw flicker in your eyes, that idea, that, that moment, that thing you were going to say, mm -hmm. 
that, that to me is the voice that has been lost. Mm. And often on the other side of that voice was an initiative, a ministry they wanted to start, a conversation they knew needed to be had, something that would have changed things. Yeah. And I think it's important we get those back, yeah. you know? Yeah. But for you, it was almost a literal thing. When did you lose your voice? Oh, yeah. I didn't know until I read the book that you, you sing. Yes. But then somebody <laughs> yes, intervened in your mm -hmm. life and basically it, it shut you down. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was, um, I, I, <laughs> I used to sing in the choir at school and I loved it. <laughs> and it was the one thing that felt really innocent. But I would lose myself when I sang. Um, and <laughs> I'm not sure that everybody really loved that, to be fair. I was, me and Whitney Houston, we were gone. And, and, um, and then um, I, I got asked to do um, a solo in the choir, and it was like, this is amazing. I got my chance, my chance to be right. Whitney. Right. And, uh, and I did have a, a voice which was slightly beyond my ears and in an adult kind of way. Okay. But, and I remember the teachers being really moved and really liking it, but these, some of the girls in my class who um, mocked it uh. and mocked it and they mocked the dress I was wearing and the things that I'd sung and everything. Mm. And I just began to shrink mm. at that point. And I remember making a decision to leave the choir and find a habit that was more socially acceptable. Hmm. Wow. And I was 10, mm. but I, 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 as I've gone through life, I think there have been many times I've left the choir. Mm -hmm. And there have been many times I found the more acceptable opportunity that other people approved of mm -hmm. instead of what I was really about. And um, yeah, so whenever, I, whenever I'm wrestling, I do come back to the playground in that moment. Uh, it's I funny, when I read that, it actually stirred a really painful memory in me because when I was 16, I got the lead role in West Side Story at school, mm. Maria, yeah. and we had a rehearsal in front of the whole school and I sang, I Feel Pretty. Mm. And one of the senior boys from oh. the back shouted out, well, you don't look it. Oh my goodness. And that, honestly, that oh was my like goodness. a knife in my heart for yeah. years. I yeah. just wanted to stay in the background. And I wonder how many people out there yeah. have had a moment where somebody has said no. Yeah. And that's louder than they're hearing God's yes over their life. Absolutely. I think people often hear that they're too much or not good enough. And either of those will cause you to put your life and your call and your voice on mute. And they all cause you to think, unless I can be perfect, unless I can do it the best way, the right way, the perfect way, I'm just not going to bother. What was it that made you say, wait a minute, that voice, that vocation, that calling, that is from God and I am going to go live it out? I think it was a number of things over a number of years. My teachers, I had amazing teachers who would take extra time with me. Mm. And they would encourage me. You know, um, encouragement gives you courage, doesn't it? It, mm -hmm. kind of, it yeah, makes it you think things are possible. Does, yeah. So that, um, they played a key role. My youth pastors, I, I think the world is not worthy <laughs> of our youth pastors. <laughs> yeah. And the things they say again and again and again and the opportunities they give you. Um, I, I think it was a number of leaders around me who would say, give it a, just give it another try. Give it another try. And, and as I began to understand more of my own identity, as, as I began to understand God's dream, for me, it, that gave me a bit more courage as well. And it was tentative steps. It really was. And, and sometimes it was through the tears. I remember being asked to read the Bible at church and being physically sick, <laughs> physically sick because of the fear and the sense of shame and not wanting to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. And she, it she, took a while. Sheila can relate to that a bit. I think you had your own episode. Oh, yeah. When I first, the very first time I spoke on the Women of Faith platform, 
two speakers went before me and I literally went to the bathroom and threw up because I thought, I can't do this, yeah. Lord. You just look and see, don't you, yeah. how amazing everything else right. is. You compare yourself yeah, to others. You compare. Yeah. Sure. But you know what I discovered, Joe, which I thought was interesting? Maybe a year in, down the road, we were all sitting in the green room and my prayer that night was, Lord, I never feel like I'm worth this. Mm. And every single other woman, yeah. all these speakers that I thought were so perfect, they said, you know what, we feel exactly the same. Yeah. So I think one of the things your book is going to do is to let people know they're not alone. Yeah. You're not the only one who feels this way. Yeah, that would be my prayer, really. And I, I start the book and I write letters. Yeah, to... I wanted to ask you about that. Who are the letters to? Um, they're for a number of my friends and mm. some women I've mentored. Um, maybe a woman I had a conversation with at a conference or over coffee and they often came to mind and part of it was I wanted um, a book that didn't just give us our shoulds and things we ought to do though they're important I wanted us to have a moment you know where we could stop and say let's be honest about how it really is yeah. for us sometimes and it doesn't mean you haven't got faith because you're struggling mm -hmm. it just means that life has happened to you too right. and so I wanted to write the letters to give us a chance to to say look this is where I'm at do you understand I think you've been there too and maybe together we can find out what the Lord would have to say and encourage each other to move forward are any so, of yeah. the letters to a young Joe oh gosh yes <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think um I think the, the losing your voice one was. I think there was the sense of having these ideas and wanting to do so, so much more than your life felt you could do. Mm. Um, I, think, I think there was one, the ones on the wilderness and there's a chapter on grief. Those, that was to the Joe of her 30s. I'm 43 now and my 30s were wonderful, um, but they were really hard. I experienced grief for the first time in a tangible, someone close to me dying. Mm. And I just didn't know if I'd find my way through, mm. you know, and I had young kids. Um, I'd had postpartum depression after my second. And it, th there was this just year of crisis after crisis where I got up slower each time. Yeah. Wow. And, it, and, I, and it was, the world was gray for years and years. And yet it was the life I dreamed of, having this young family and I'd felt called to the state. So I was, I was living the answer to my prayers and yet something wasn't quite together. So definitely that one, <laughs> that one was definitely that to that chapter era. The, that you call the wander years was one of the ones that really spoke to me the most. Yeah. Because sometimes you ask God for a certain thing or you feel that God's got something and then it happens and you think, well, this isn't quite what I saw. Yeah. Is that how it was for you? But, oh, very much so. I'd, I'd hoped to, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd felt called to the state since I was 14. And so to, and I tried to find my own ways. There are a couple of dates that probably shouldn't have gone much further than one date, just yeah. in a hope to get there. Which <laughs> <laughs> is ridiculous. We have better ways. Yes. Yeah, I, thankfully in the end, found better ways. Yes. And, um, and got here and thought, finally, this is what the Lord has for me. It's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be wonderful. And it was so hard. And culturally, they say England and America are two cultures divided by the same language. And, uh, I think there's some truth in that sometimes. And I just didn't understand. I would prayed about this. I'd fasted. I'd, people had prayed for me, sent me. I'd left my family, my loved ones. It was meant to be amazing. And it was just tough mm -hmm. and dry and sometimes dull. And I just couldn't get my head around it. And I, I remember being in a, in a grocery store wanting some comfort. And I wanted a, a tin of Heinz baked beans. Amen. Which are... Glorious. Amen. And I, <laughs> you're looking at me. But they yes. are, like, on a bad day when you feel sad, it's a healthy way to not go towards the donuts. Beans you know? and toast. <laughs> it's a British it's classic. It's just 
Glorious, glorious. Literally, literally beans. Bean, baked oh, beans. Yeah, baked beans. Baked beans. And a tomato sauce on what well, tomato it's sauce really in Britain. And I and I went there because the store was called Safeway and they had Safeways in England, yes. but they didn't have my beans. Oh. And I remember breaking down and weeping <laughs> and weeping in the grocery store. No, everybody just kind of walked around yeah, me. Right. <laughs> like, why? It's the, a bean crisis. This situation. Um, but I think it was that sense of loss and mm. longing and yeah. and. And my dreams have come true and this is amazing so why do I feel so empty mm. and why do I feel like I'm wandering and do I want to go back to my Egypt or do I want to keep walking forward and towards maybe there's a promised land somewhere mm. it just took a long time to get there Mm. I, I didn't realize, I mean, I guess you and I just met at a conference yes. and so we just, we didn't have that much time. Um, <laughs> but I didn't realize that you were raised for a good part of your life in a, in a foster home. Yes. Which was a really good experience for yeah. you. But then in a moment it changed. Yeah. What, what, what was that like for you? Well, I was six years old and, or just, just before my sixth birthday and we were going um, to London for the holidays, was my understanding, going further in. And I didn't know. I didn't know. And so there was this strange, unexpected homecoming where I was back with my family and um, my biological family. And it was wonderful. I, but it was, but I was, I had two homes. So for the first six years you'd been with your foster family? Yeah. And so I, I kept on thinking of my Christmas gifts under the tree and mm. would I get them? And I was happy, sad. The mm. only way I can describe it is I was happy, sad. I was happy because I was surrounded by my Nigerian aunts and uncles and my mum. And yet I was sad and achingly sad because I, what about my school friends? Mm. And, and I, I just felt lost. And I do, I do remember at that point, that was one of the moments where the identity broke for sure. Mm. And maybe it had broken long before and I didn't know, but at that moment, I thought nothing felt secure. You could leave at any time. Even the people you loved could leave you at any time. Wow. And so it was safer to hold back. Wow. So what do you do during these times of wandering and wandering in these desert periods? Mm -hmm. you know, how, what, what's, what's the solution? How do we get through them? I think um, community is an important part. Yeah. I think there, uh, there's an African proverb which says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Oh, I love that. Wow. And um, yeah. I'd love to take credit, but it really isn't me. <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but it, I think there is something in us holding one another in that time yeah. and, and learning from people who've wandered before you. And maybe there's a trail that can guide your way. Um, I found worship was an incredibly powerful part of it for me because it took me beyond what I could understand in that moment, what my intellect could do. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to have habits and it doesn't sound glamorous, but I, you'd pick up the Bible and read it again because there was a time when it was on fire for me. And if I stopped praying and if I stopped reading the Bible, and there were days I did for sure, but if I made that a habit, then I'd never find that moment again. Mm. But if I stayed there, then maybe, maybe there'd be a day when then everything would connect. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But I needed community yeah. to help me too. Mm. One of the things that you said in the book that I found really shocking, and I probably shouldn't, but you, you talk about being a young girl and your favorite aunt mm. saying out loud in the room, you're black, you're a woman, yeah. you're gonna have to try twice as hard as anybody else. Yeah. I wondered, how did that impact you, Joe? And now, what do you say to your daughters? Because you've got two girls. Yeah. 
Um, it was a really challenging, it wasn't a challenging conversation, ironically. Um, my, my aunts and my mum and many of, the, there's a large Nigerian community in England and, and they'd moved over in the 60s and it was a difficult time. It was a really difficult time. There'd be signs on doors saying no Irish, no dogs, no blacks. Hmm. They couldn't rent um, because of these things. They had dreams that they didn't get to fulfill. People would talk to them as slowly with a view to them not understanding and they understood every word. Mm. And so they had, they, but they did it for their kids. You know, they did it to give their kids a new opportunity and a new life. And so it felt medicinal on one, on one level, but it made me think, I remember my aunt looking at me and it wasn't a harsh conversation, but she said in the climate we're in, and there was a lot of racial tension in our community at the time. And you know, we got called names and terrible, terrible things, terrible things. And she said, Joe, it's not, it's not gonna be easy for you. And, and so what your friends get away with, you can't get away with because of the stereotypes you live under. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm, I'm gonna take, this is my auntie Bassie talking and she's the best person ever. So I'm, I'm gonna take it on. And I, but the, the dilemma was I applied it to everything. Mm. I, she meant mainly my academic career, but I, in every situation I would have to be the best. And I wasn't trying to be better than anybody else. I was trying to not get left behind. Wow. I was trying to have, I was trying for my shot at what the other, somebody else's equality was. And um, it was hard, mm -hmm. but it was necessary. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know many people in our community who didn't have that conversation. Mm. And now as a mum of, and I, I'm, we're a multi-ethnic family. My husband was a Scot, is a Scot, <laughs> born in Edinburgh. And, um, and so my, my girls, are, we, we carry all the shades in our family. And um, my girls are, are biracial and it's, it's been challenging. It's been challenging. I, I'd love to say it's, it's a perfect world now and every, we're in a new place. How so? How so? I'm curious. Um, I think the, the, the racial abuse our family's received. Really? And um, the abuse we've died. I tend to get it the most. <laughs> it tends to be directed at me the most passionately, but my children have encountered it too. And all I could say was, well, it was later than I thought. You know, that's, that was my level of expectation. Um, the cr cruel things that have been said of their friends and them, uh, and it's like having to get a child to respond like an adult. Mm. So there's a real grief with that. How do we purge that from our culture? How do we just get rid of that once and for all? Can I mean, we please, right? I mean, I'm tired of it. a long road. I mean, yeah. I, it, is, it is a long road. I think it's a long road and I think it does require a perseverance. And I, I would say there are a number of things that we, can, we as the church can do. I believe we are salt and light yeah. and salt is meant to impact the world around it. It preserves, it protects, it has a distinct flavor. And so I would say to us as church, what flavor are we? Mm -hmm. um, and are we listening to those around us who may have a very different experience of life than ourselves? Yeah. But can we hear their pain mm -hmm. without taking it personally? Mm -hmm. Can we hold their hand um, and lament? Mm -hmm. wow. Which we see throughout scripture, don't yeah, we? We absolutely. see lament. And then will we speak on behalf of those who are vulnerable? I think those are starting points yes. to yes. behaviors, to systems, to various things like that. And, and can we celebrate? You know, we, we're all made in the image of God and I think there is a celebrating rather than a tolerating. Yeah. I, can we celebrate the beauty and the richness that God has made rather Absolutely. than say, oh, let's just oh. pretend it's the same. It's not the same, no. but it's beautiful. That's and I, beautiful. Think, um, I honestly think Joe's book is gonna be one of those yeah. pieces that God places in the puzzle. And we're gonna mm -hmm. tell you how you can get hold of a copy of this book. But first of all, we'd love to show you something and ask for you to respond. Would you watch this? 
I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I give him hope. Give him hope. He's hard work. Restore his hope. These families may live on opposite sides of the world, but they share a common pain, the pain of losing a child because they had no other choice but to drink from contaminated water sources. The first child I lost was my son that died on my back when I was taking him to the clinic. And my second child died here because I could not get her to the clinic. Their symptoms were so bad. Their skin was peeling and their hair was falling out. As long as mothers like Fidesz have no other choice but to collect water from contaminated sources, this common pain, this death cycle, will continue. My other children are scared about the dirty water, but they have no other choice. They pray they will have clean water soon and not die like their brother and sister did. But there is a solution that Life Outreach has provided to nearly 6,000 villages where there is no longer death, but life. It is pure, clean drinking water flowing from a well that love has drilled. This is what we want to do for Fidesz, her children, and mothers like her around the world. There's so much in that that I don't even know what to say about. As a mother, carrying your child on your back to try and get her to a clinic in time. Notice there's no car, there's no transportation. Literally a mom, weak herself, and probably some kind of disease, carrying her child on her back. And by the time she gets to the clinic, that child is dead. And with the second child, she didn't even get the chance to even try and start out for the clinic because that child died so quickly. I have been in the clinics and watched children with the, literally their skin peeling off. At one point I asked, why is their hair red? And it was like, because there's no protein in their system. I mean, it was just heartbreaking. And as a mom, I can't even imagine what that's like. I mean, how do you even go to sleep at night when you don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring for your child? But the amazing thing and why I'm so grateful, so profoundly grateful to be part of this ministry is that we work with people in these countries and we've worked out the system of how we can go into a village, we can, for $4,800, we can drill a well. That well will last for 70 years. It literally is water for life. And if you saw the difference, when you see their faces, the first time that that clean water shoots out the earth, they've never seen clean water in their lives. This is a desperate situation, but it can be changed. If you and I decide we're on the earth at this point, it's not an accident and it's our privilege. It's not something we have to do because we're believers. It's a holy privilege that we get to reach out and say, you know what, we're gonna change this. I mean, there's really, it doesn't take that much, Randy. I mean, even $48 will give clean water. Yeah, for 10 people for a life. It, it's, it's almost ridiculous how simple it is to solve this problem. And, and I got to tell you, if we didn't have a solution for this, it would be very hard to cope with because you've been there. Yeah. I've been there. I have stood over graves of children. 
because they had, had one water source and it was polluted. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough stuff. I mean, it's, it's rough out there. But the good news is it's a very easy problem to fix and you're the solution. That's why we want to invite you to join us in giving water for life, for a lifetime in most cases, and definitely for a better life in all cases, a healthier life. And we always give it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you're not just giving water that they'll drink and they'll be well, but you're helping to share that living water who can make them well for eternity. So go to the phones, go online, give the best gift you can, and join us as we share water for life around the world. Every day, children living in extreme poverty are forced to make a dreadful choice. Drink dirty, polluted water filled with deadly disease or die from thirst. No child should ever be faced with this decision. The good news is there is a solution. Mission Water for Life is one of the most proven and viable demonstrations of God's love in the world today. You can help end the suffering because clean water changes everything. With your gift today, you can help drill 400 water wells in remote villages in over 15 nations. Your gift of $24 will help provide clean water for five people. A gift of $48 will help provide for 10. $72 will provide for 15 people. And $144 will help provide fresh, life-giving water for 30 people for a lifetime. With your gift, we'll send you the riches of Christ, what true prosperity looks like, filled with wisdom, prayers, and scripture. James Robison adds insight from what God has shown him about finding contentment in the Father's provision for your life. With your gift of $100 or more, please request the Children of the World Storybook Bible. This easy-to-read Bible features colorful art by children from nearly 50 countries around the world. Finally, please consider a gift of $1,200 to help provide water for 250 people or a gift of $4,800 to help sponsor a complete well. And you may request the Bridge of Faith Frame Canvas Print by Thomas Kincaid. Please call, write, or make your gift online. This mother has four children. Last summer, a year ago, they had an outbreak of intestinal disease from contaminated water. Two of her children got very, very sick. Now she's got a little baby, just a few months old, and this baby is living on her mother's milk. This baby's nursing. But Betty, pretty soon, this little baby's gonna be drinking that water. And oftentimes, it takes their lives. It really does, James, and, and they can't do anything about it because it's all the water that they have. I just can't even imagine. This little baby is so precious, so beautiful. Her mama just cuddling her and taking care of her, and she makes little sounds of life. But you know, I don't know how long those little sounds of life will be if we don't do something to help them. We can make the difference by doing the water wells and giving them a fresh cup of water. I'd like you to be one of the hands to reach out and dial the telephone number and take your bank card and use it like a check or write a check and make it to life and say, I want to give life to children like this and keep them healthy. Thank you so much, so much. Please go to your phones. We have a goal here. We want to put 400 new wells in 15 countries. And for any gift at all, we will send you Joe's book, The Dream of You. And I know it's going to really, really bless you. Joe, thank you so much for thank being you. here, you little British wonder. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. <laughs> thank you all for being with us, too. Yes, absolutely. We want to see you again here on Live Today. And if you miss any episode, you can always go to our website and catch up, livetoday.org.
and I began to understand that my worth to Jesus will never be what I do. It's who I am. Tomorrow. Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.